0: The, the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible is we come across passages that if it was left up to my freedom and will, I would not pick this to preach. It's a tough passage, so I'm just letting you know that ahead of time. want to be honest with you, uh, but with that, let's uh, take a look at God's Word. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we'll begin at verse 4 and go all the way to 16. God's Word says this, For if God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here's, here's like the hinge of the passage, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel, In the daytime, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Boar, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speech. Speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained that prophet, that's Balaam's madness. This is the word of the Lord. Whew, okay. Happy Thanksgiving. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm, I'm going to confess this ahead of time. We're not getting to each and every little... Uh, part and parcel of this passage. We're going to leave some stuff on the table. We're going to really hit some big ideas uh, to sprint towards the finish line of application, like what in the world does this mean to us? So with that, we're going to jump right in to our main idea. It's three simple words, okay? God is just. God is just. Now there is much talk in our community and country of justice, right? You just turn on the TV and you hear about justice and the application of justice. Uh, this, is, this is good and right. Justice is a good thing. We properly reflect the image of God when we do this. This is really the heart of justice. When we love what is good and we despise what is wrong and desire to do something about it, to take action. Okay, that's really the heart of justice, but we also know, I mean, we just look around our culture, around the world, that justice has been mishandled at times. It not only, in its good sense, it evidences the, the image of God within us. It also conveys our our distortion of God's justice and His law. As we seek out, we see all too often this play out, as we seek out solutions to right the wrongs of, of problems in our society, we inevitably create other issues of injustice. We call these catch-22s. We, we, we create problems that, that we're supposed to fix problems and it just kind of snowballs and spirals. Oftentimes, there seems to be no reasonable solution. But I will, I'll promise you this, it's not hopeless because the one true God, as we said in our, our main idea, is a just God. He is a God of justice. He is a God who upholds what is right He is making all things right or all things new and will make all things right and new. Even when a person, we can look around society, even when a person seems to not be held to proper justice, hear this, the Lord will ultimately handle it. We can trust him. We can trust that God is a God of justice. Verse 9 is the crucial idea of Peter's text and is really a main thread that we see all throughout Scripture. It says this, simply put, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I want to read this in light of a passage from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. He says here, do not be deceived. Okay, Understand this clear truth. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, that is like sinful desire, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one, here it is, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is a God of justice. In our text, we find an incredibly relevant lesson for our society. That God is just, and He will not be mocked. Each person will will get their due. Now, we need to read this in light of redemptive history. We are now on this side of the cross, where we can look back and we can see what Christ has accomplished at Calvary. On this side of the cross in history, we must read justice in light of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news about Jesus that those found to be in Christ, that is, those who are saved through, through faith, or confidence as we say it, or trust alone in this, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, will be judged, not according to our own work, but according to the righteousness of Jesus. Those not found in Christ will be judged according to their own works. Those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior will be judged according to their own work, their own merits, and here's the truth, that their sin-tainted works will never measure up to the perfect, holy, and righteous standard of God. Hence the reason that we all need Jesus, among many other reasons. And crucial to those who have faith in Jesus is this that this is I'm speaking to a room of Christians is the transformative effects of God's spirit living within us and changing our worldview, our outlook and giving us the spirit of God gives us a new nature okay we're born again that begins to do this restore the image of God in his people so that we properly reflect his image in creation. And he also promises ultimate restoration of all things. Again, that, the idea of making all things new. And so now in this text, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a few points. Again, as I said, we're going to we'll go really fast through the first two, and then the last, one, last few we're going to sit on for just a little bit. In this text, we find an indictment against the evildoers in and around the church. Remember the context. Peter's de- dealing with false teaching in the church. And so we we see in this passage an indictment against the evildoers in and around the church in Peter's day, and also an indictment against those who openly mock the standards of righteousness given through the Word of God. Along with, we also see in this passage grace and mercy. We We see the grace and faithfulness of God to keep evil at bay, to keep evil restrained, And also we see through Noah, the example of Noah and Lot, God's calling of many to be saved through Jesus. And so I want to do this with the passage today. Like someone comes to you and they say, I got good news and I got bad news. What do you want to hear first? You know, I always say, give me the bad news first because I want to end on a high note. So we're going to flip the passage around. I don't want to end on bad news. We're going to end on some fairly good news. We're going to start with the bad news first, all right? So we're going to look at the ending of this passage first. Our first point is this. We see in this passage evidence against evildoers. Evidence against the ungodly, against evildoers. Peter, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, provides proper evidence of what has been done wrong. Uh, it's very clear what's going on among these false teachers that are within the church. It says this in verses 10 to 16. The Bible says this, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to, As I go through this section, I'm going to pause, so just kind of follow along with me and describe some of the things that are going on here. This is part of our teaching this morning. It says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. What does that mean? Sexual immorality is what Peter's getting at. And despise authority. Okay, They don't acknowledge God's way or his sovereign rule or his being over all things. It says they're bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What in the world does that mean? They have no reverence for the greater spiritual beings within creation. They have no reverence for angels. They have no reverence for demons. They have no reverence for God. They think they, These false teachers think they just have it all figured out. There's just no reverence in their life for things that are of greater power than they are. It says, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, right? They don't really have a true knowledge of what's going on. will also be, listen to how complete this statement is. will also be destroyed in their destruction. Like that's destruction piled upon destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing, right? The, the human condition and the penalty of God's judgment summarized right there in that section. But wait, there's more. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Revel? What does it, mean? it means they're just following after their hedonistic desires. Just pleasure drives them. It doesn't matter what the consequence or cost is. And it says in the daytime, meaning sin's just out in the open. It's not hidden. There's no shame at all. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Right? They deceive and and lie right in in your midst. Now Peter will get us into some detailed evidence of their wickedness. Like what are they actually doing? He's going to give us the details. The Bible says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So again, this picture of sexual sin and deviancy that's going on, this is, this is interesting. They entice unsteady souls. Okay, what is he saying? They take advantage of the weak. They lead them into sin. Jesus in his ministry had some pretty uh, significant words to say to those who lead the weak into sin. They have hearts trained in greed. So we see there the sinful desire for stuff and money. Then this statement accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. So the Bible's making clear that there's a right way here. It's not just some subjective right way, it's an objective right way because it comes from God and it's revealed through His Word. They're lost in their sin. Moving on, they have followed the way of, of Balaam, the son of Boar, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. Listen to this. This is how God reached this prophet. We hit on him back when we went through our study of Jude towards the end of August. He was a man who, uh, a king, uh, Balak, had called him to deceive the Israelites, to pull them away from God, but Balaam actually had some some conviction and some wrestling back and forth on whether or not that was right or wrong. But ultimately, greed took over his heart, and he sought out to deceive the Israelites, and he was so blinded in his sin that God had to work through his donkey. Isn't that like some irony right there in that statement? The donkey actually saw the right way. It says, A speechless donkey spoke with human voice, and restrained the prophet's madness, right? He was blinded. Even the, He was so blind that the donkey could see the right way, but he couldn't. Peter's accusations against the false teachers are not vague. They're detailed. They're clear. The evidence is clear. It's substantial. Okay, there, there's a simple teaching here. Okay, the warning is clear. Like, Don't act like these guys are. We can make this really complicated if we want, but simply put, like you don't want to be like the false teachers and you don't want to be following after what they're teaching. God's judgment follows that pathway. Moreover, don't allow this activity within Christ's bride, the church. This this evidence reminds us that as Paul said earlier that passage we quoted from Galatians again God is not mocked he's a god of justice we will give an account for the lives that we have lived each will reap what they sow Finally beyond, beyond the confines of the local church we are also to be we are called to be this Christian proclaimers of righteousness in our culture to speak the truth in love Showing people this. I want to be real clear about this because this this has come under fire in our culture especially and even among some Christians that look at the church and for some reason they feel ashamed. We are to show people the better way of the Christian faith. The better way of Christianity. Following after Jesus is the right way. And living according to His standards is the right way. To live in obedience to the commands of Jesus. This is why we speak the truth plainly. This is a charge for us as Christians. We don't dance and dabble with sexual sin, lure the weaker into debauchery, or allow greed and envy to take root in our hearts. John Owen says it simply like this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Our second point, we see this, evidence of God's restraint and grace. We see that in this passage, evidence of God's restraint and grace. We see the restraining force of God against evil, and we see the grace of God in the lives of Lot and Noah. The Bible says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, the word used for hell there is is unique to this letter, it's the Greek word Tartarus, which is like the underworld, the abyss, like the depths of the depths is the picture that we get. Hell doesn't capture or fully capture the meaning of what Peter's saying. He's saying they're going to the lowest place possible. They're in the lowest place possible. This is the angels that sinned against God, what we would know as demons. He says, and committed them, notice this, to chains, of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, what's a herald do, right? They speak things, they proclaim, with seven others, that was his family, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is Genesis. Uh, We see Noah, I believe, in Genesis. Where is it at? Nine? Six? Somewhere in there. Then we have Lot. I'm not even going to try to guess where those are at. I had them in my head this morning. It's gone. <clears throat> Back into the text. If by, so now we're looking to Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit further in history. In Genesis, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, he condemned them to extinction. And this is the reason why. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He's making it clear God's not holding anything back. And if he rescued, hear this, righteous Lot, greatly distressed, look at his attitude, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Right? Lot wasn't in a pleasant place. It was tormenting him to see the lawlessness and the sin going on in Sodom and Gomorrah says, then the Lord knows, this is a beautiful promise, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is just. Here, Peter alludes to the Old Testament, so he's going to use Old Testament examples to teach us Christians. And we see in this examples of this, of God's restraint, his restraining power over evil and we see his grace and mercy in rescuing Noah and Lot and their families in the illustration of angels we see that that they've fallen and they've been held in judgment we see Noah and his family saved they're proclaimers of righteousness and Lot being spared from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and these examples again we see God's restraining power over evil and his grace in salvation these men were saved so here's a fact. These are some truths that we can draw out of this passage. Angels who have sinned against God and His authority are what we know as demons. Okay, These are real, spiritual, powerful, spiritual beings. But we see here that, that they've been confined... And they're chained, so what can, what truth can we draw out from that? That they don't have the agency or freedom to go about as they choose, but rather only as God allows. We see this clearly here, that they're restrained and held back from God. We witness this play out in in the story of Job, where Satan must be granted permission by God to test Job. Finally, we see the restraining power of God in the person of Jesus. Jesus has what? He has authority to cast out demons. Okay, So here's a truth, this should be encouraging to us, uh, from the Bible that that the world and its system is not a dualism. There's not good and evil that are equal in power. Okay? God is over all. And He is good. And He restrains evil. And He also, we see in these examples, that He restrains evil through the discipline of the ungodly. That's, that's evidenced in the flood account. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, I had it in my notes here, see? And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Okay, now I want us to pause here. If we know, if we know Scripture, if we know our Bibles, most of us know the story, even if we haven't read it word for word, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we know what was going on there. We have modern words that we use that come from Sodom and Gomorrah that describe things that go on even in our culture. If we know what happened, we know how God intervened and how God restrained evil and punished and disciplined. This should jar us. Okay, Now we fast forward to our time frame. This should jar us as we examine the state of our culture. That's the truth and the continued moral downward spiral of our nation. We see in our country, in our present time, rampant sexual sin and deviancy. We see open disregard for those who cannot defend themselves, the unborn, so much so that people platform politically on that point alone. And that if you stand against that practice, you're an extremist. It's crazy. We see in our society arrogance and sinful pride. We see in our society the neglect of the sojourner and the poor, just to name a few. But we also, we can get really arrogant and prideful when we start thinking about these things. We also see the restraining power of God. We, we see His grace to save. The Old Testament example of Lot and Noah show the grace and mercy of God to save a faithful remnant. In these instances, it is Noah and his family, and later Lot in his family. And so we start getting this question now. What do we do? Like This is a heavy passage, right? Anybody with me? This is heavy. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy when we actually open our eyes and examine the culture around us and see what God did in Old Testament times, and then we look and and drive around our community and say, man, a lot of these same things are happening, if not worse. So what do we do? Christian, we're called to action. We don't sit idly by. We don't become complacent. We don't become blind to everything that's going on. Okay, I want to be clear again, God, is, God always preserves at least a faithful few. No matter how bad it seems to get, God is in control. And in his grace, keeps his people going in the midst of seeming chaos. Things may seem chaotic, but ultimately God's in control. That gives us this truth. In God's plan, nothing is reckless or chaotic. He's got this. He promised, even through Jesus, Jesus said this, He promised to establish His church, and He said this, and the gates of hell would not, will not prevail against it. Moreover, here's where grace comes in. We, we see in these examples that God uses people who are imperfect. Okay? Noah and Lot, if you've read those stories again, this, that history of those two men, they were far from perfect men. And yet, the Bible des- describes them here as righteous. But we know that they had their own shortcomings and sin, right? I mean, we only need to look at the the story. I'm not going to get into Lot's sin. I don't really want to walk through that this morning. Noah, right after he gets off the boat, hits the booze and falls asleep naked in the tent and his kid comes in and is looking at him. Both these men struggle and wrestle with sin. They're not perfect. That's good news for us. Anybody in here wrestling with sin? Right? I am. And we know through the example of them in Second Peter that anybody who walks through the doors of North Bullitt Christian Church is welcomed. Whatever you're struggling with, alcoholism, sexual sin, same-sex attraction, maybe you did make the decision to abort your child, there is grace and forgiveness at the foot of the cross for you. And so as I speak up here of the judgment of God, I don't want to sound like a judgmental person. The grace and mercy of Jesus is available to everyone who will place their faith and trust in Him. I dare not get prideful and arrogant in the salvation that was won by the work of another, Jesus. I contributed nothing. I just brought my guilt and my shame to Him. And so in Noah and Lot, we see them both struggle and wrestle with sin. The Bible makes clear, the thing that's beautiful about Scripture is it doesn't hide the things that they did wrong. It exposes them. They handed themselves over to sin at times, but God's grace overcomes. In this room, every single person who has called upon the name of the Lord is an example of God's grace and Mercy. And so now we, we look to their model. So the first illusion, Old Testament illusion, that we'll examine is Lot. What can we learn from him? Uh, I skipped a point. Go to point A under that last section. Cindy, please. Next one. Thank you. Uh, we see by Lot that he was grieved by sin. This is the takeaway that we have. He's grieved by sin. says this in verses 7 to 8. He, he's, let me pause here. He's grieved by the sin that's going on all around him. Says, the Bible says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Now it gives us some description of what's going on. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was tormented by what was going on all around him. I want to read, i got a little bit more time here. I'm going to read the beginning part of a blog from Billy Graham Ministries. I think it ties in perfectly to what we're dealing with this morning. This was written by Billy Graham before he passed, and it details a conversation between Uh, Billy and his wife Ruth. It says, Some years ago, my wife Ruth was reading the draft of a book I was writing when she finished a section describing the terrible downward spiral of our nation's moral standards and the idolatry of worshiping false gods such as technology and sex. She startled me by exclaiming, hear this, if God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that jar you? Billy goes on. She was probably thinking of a passage in Ezekiel where God tells why he brought those cities to ruin. He quotes the Scripture. Now this was the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. (laughs) I wonder what Ruth would think of America if she were alive today. This was written in 2012. In the years since she made that remark, millions of babies have been aborted, and our nation seems largely unconcerned. Self-centered indulgence, pride, and a lack of shame over sin are now emblems of the American lifestyle. Just a few weeks ago, in a prominent city in the South, Christian chaplains who served the police department were ordered to no longer mention the name of Jesus in prayer. It was reported that during a recent police-sponsored event, the only person allowed to pray was someone who addressed, quote, the being in the room. Similar scenarios are now commonplace in towns across America. Our society strives to avoid any possibility of offending anyone except God. Yet the farther we get from God, the more the world spirals out of control. Can you see it? My heart aches for America and its deceived people. There's good news. The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. In Jonah's day, Nineveh was the lone world superpower, wealthy, unconcerned, and self-centered. When the prophet Jonah finally traveled to Nineveh and proclaimed God's warning, what happened? People heard and repented. It's not too late. Ruth Graham is... Billy Graham, detailed. I like to call him Billy. We're on a first-name basis. She she showed her righteousness, not because she was perfect, but because she was tormented by the sin of what she saw around her. Are you? Are you jarred or uneasy about the rampant sin that's occurring within our culture and our churches? I'm not talking about being judgmental. We all struggle with things. But are you concerned? We're not better than anyone else. We're saved by the grace and mercy of God alone, through the righteousness of Jesus alone. But this doesn't mean that we sit idly by as our communities delve deeper and deeper into sin. Does it grieve your soul to look around and witness the decline of our churches even? Where we the church really now have just become by and large a purveyor of religious goods and services. Does this church check as many boxes to make me happy? That's the place I'm going to go. Instead of being concerned about this is the word of God preached there and is God honored there. Lot was tormented by the sin of his city and he acted out. In Genesis 19, we find Lot. Like he doesn't stay quiet. He's tormented by the sin. In Genesis 19, we find Lot at the gate. Okay, there's two angels coming to the city. And Lot quickly ushers the two angels away from the town square. They want to go stay the night in the town square. And he's like, you don't want to go down there. And he takes them into the safety of his home. Now, now I'm sure these powerful, glorious beings, glorious agents of God could have held their own, right? They probably had things under control. But Lot does not even allow them to be exposed to the debauchery of the city. But we know, ultimately, that the sinful lust of the city came what? Knocking at the door. The question is, are are we, now, as we look around, are we becoming numb to what's going on around us? Just the incrementalism of sin over decades and decades and decades. And now we look back and say, how did we get here? Are we tormented by the unrighteousness of our nation? And are we acting out in our torment, taking loving and protective measures? Christian, are you guarding your homes from the rampant sexual deviance you found on any device with a screen that's in your house? Parents, are you teaching, and grandparents, are you teaching your children the moral law of God in order to honor the salvation that we have in Christ? You see, true freedom is not found in being able to do whatever I want to do. That's called anarchy. I was listening to a lecture this last week by a man named Dr. Wright, and he's like, the last thing you want is anarchy. Because that's not freedom. True freedom is found in the boundaries and discipline of, of the gospel and following the moral law of God. Are you tormented by the sins of our society? And are you willing to do something? Are you willing to stand for truth? Which brings us to our last point. We see in in Noah that we are to be proclaimers of truth. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah A herald of righteousness. What does that mean to be a herald, right? A proclaimer, a truth speaker. With seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a herald of righteousness, not only through his words, but action. What was his action? He built, he obeyed God and built this gigantic boat out in the middle of nowhere where there was no water. And everybody said, hey, why are you building that boat? And he said, because God's judgment is coming. You need to repent. You need to clean up your life. right?" His actions led to conversations with people. We're called to the same thing. Why do you act the way that you do? Well, let me tell you about Jesus and what He's done for my life. I think Paul summarizes this beautifully in Romans chapter 10. I have in your uh, notes verse 17, but we're just going to read the whole section. We've gone long anyway, so let's just go longer, right? Let's read uh, verses 8 to 17. Turn in your Bibles there. Let's turn in the paper Bibles. Flip to Romans 10. It'll be to your left a little bit. The title of this section is, is called The Message of Salvation to All. You guys there yet? Alright. Romans uh, ten eight to 17 it says, uh, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And he says, that is the word of faith we, what? Proclaim. Because if you, this is the gospel truth, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, right? that he was resurrected, what does it say? Simply put, you will be saved. We want to add all sorts of stuff onto that. Paul makes it clear. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Greek meaning everybody else. For the same Lord is Lord of all. God is over everything. Bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did you hear that? How then will they call? Now what do we do, right? Here we go. Paul's going to give us some to-do's. How then will they call on him him whom they they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's not just me. That's you. Verse 16, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Here it is. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. What are we supposed to do? What's our calling? What's our work? We are proclaimers of the truth. What's the truth? Salvation through Christ alone. Church of Christ. Church of God. Don't be silent. It's not just my job to proclaim the truth. It's my job to stir you through the power of God's Spirit to stand up from this place, to go out these doors and to charge the gates of hell with the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be silent. Proclaim the truth as Noah did with action. He built a boat and with word. Proclaim the truth through the way that you live, and when people ask you about it, you tell them it's all about Jesus. We sing that song, let me tell you about my what? Jesus. Let my Jesus change your life. Amen?